One, two, one, two. There I am. Oh, good. Uh, I'm actually glad it wasn't turned on yet. That was my fault, by the way, not his. As I was coming up, I told my wife, hey, love you. And then I realized that might be weird unless you realize that she's my wife over there. <laughs> it's like that. Um, my name is Matt. Again, I serve as a worship pastor here. And it's a, it's a privilege, it's a delight to open God's word together, but especially on a day where we have baptisms. I mean, right? Like, man, that was awesome. So uh, go ahead and open your copy of the Bible to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. And we've been in the book of Hebrews now for about two months. And um, I'd like to start off just giving a brief overview of some of the major points that we've covered so far. Sort of a season recap, right? Uh, up through Hebrews chapter 10. So these points that are um, on the screen behind me, these are some of the things that we've talked about, some of the things we've learned, some of the things, the major bullet points in Hebrews. So the first one, God's son, God's son is the one in whom God speaks his ultimate word. The next one, Jesus is superior to angels, Moses, Joshua, Aaron, and the Levitical order of priests. Third one, Jesus holds a permanent priesthood. Fourth, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, being both the sacrifice and the high priest who offered it. And the last one, this new covenant is forever effective in securing eternal salvation and need not be repeated. So we only have a few chapters left in Hebrews, and my sense is that, that most of us at this point are probably understanding that Jesus is the greater sacrifice, that the new covenant is greater than the old. This is why our sermon series is called Greater Than. The new covenant of Jesus is 100% effective in securing eternal salvation. So, so today, I want to explore something that, um, man, it's just really jumped out of the passage for me over the past uh, month or so, and it's, it's kind of taken captive many of my thoughts and prayers, and if anyone out there has been to dinner with my wife and me lately, like over the past couple months, you're probably like, yeah, dude, we get it. We understand. That's what you're, you're preoccupied with, um, but I can't stop thinking about it, talking about it, and I think it's critical, I think it's critical that we understand this concept to the greatest degree possible. It, it, it may be strange to us, and as hard as I might try this morning, I will most likely fall short of bridging this gap of full understanding. My aim then is to try to make that gap as small as possible, all right, as small as possible. The caveat being there's still going to be a gap. There's still going to be some mystery in this, but you know what? Praise God for that, right? Praise God for that. I'm content with the idea that I, I can't know everything about God. I mean, if I did, I would question whether that God was the real God or a God I've created in my own image. So let's pray, then we'll read Hebrews 10. Father, you are holy, holy, holy. You are great mighty and compassionate. Would you fill us full of your Holy Spirit that we might understand your word today and that we might gain a greater knowledge of who you are, of who we are, and in response to that reality that we would turn to you in worship and cherish you as our greatest treasure. In your son's name we pray, amen. 
All right, so let's read Hebrews 10, 1 to 18. And I've gone ahead and underlined the verses that we're going to focus on today, the ones that I've mentioned have been just kind of popping out to me. So, so pay attention to those. And at the same time, um, make yourself aware of the context of those underlined verses. Sound good? All right, here we go. Sound good? Okay, one more thing uh, before we get started. Uh, I, I, I love some feedback. I love some, like, amens, and if you need to praise God, not because of who I am, but because of who God is. And when you hear something that brings true in your soul, hey, amen, amen, preach. Like, that helps me. It doesn't distract me. I grew up in a massive Mexican family. My dad had 12 brothers and sisters. Like, it was just loud. It was loud all the time. So I'm com- I get more comfortable the more that is. All right, ready? Here we go. This is Hebrews 10, verse 1. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, and here's the first one, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers, here's the next, would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, and this is Psalm 40, so this is the the writer of Hebrews is quoting Psalm 40 from Jesus' perspective. How cool is that? Uh, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. And then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will. First, he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, here's the next underlined section, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, Jesus, when this priest had offered for one For all time, one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has, and here's the next one, made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. And this is from Jeremiah. He's quoting Jeremiah here. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts, I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Are you seeing a consistency, church? in the underlined verses. What's been popping out to me? Let's go back to the first one. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves, all right? The law, the old covenant, right? For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. 
So the writer here seems to be comparing the difference in the results of the two covenants, like how they play out and what happens after them. Are, are you seeing that? So he doesn't explicitly say, hey, the new covenant will result in making worshipers perfect, but he is implying it when he says the law or the old covenant can never make perfect those who draw near to worship. You follow me? All right, let's go to the next one. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. The writer is saying, if the law, the old covenant, if the law had functioned like the ultimate reality that God has brought about in the new covenant of Jesus Christ, if it functioned that way, then the worshipers would have been perfected through that. It would have been a a one and done. And what's more, in verse 2, the author tells us what perfection actually looks like. I mean, maybe not in uh, totality, but at least, at least a part of it. Perfection means being cleansed in such a way that the worshiper drawing near to God would no longer feel guilty for their sins. Now that's a radical idea. No more feelings of guilt. It's leading me, it's leading me to think that in order, in order, follow me, in order to draw near to God, one must be perfected or cleansed in such a way that they would no longer feel guilty for their sins. Does that make sense? Okay, let's go on. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The second that was to come, the new and everlasting covenant of Jesus Christ makes us holy. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Holy. Holy. What does that mean? I mean, we, we use that word all the time, right? Sometimes probably not in the best way. But we use that word a lot. We hear that word a lot. And, and if you've asked the question, hey, what does holy mean? You, you may have received a response that goes something like this. Well, the Hebrew word for holy, it means set apart. Set apart. Oh, okay. Like, now what? I mean, okay, set apart, but I'm not quite getting it. So let's keep going. Next one. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. All right, that's a bit more info. Okay, we are, we are being made holy by the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and we are also made perfect forever. Perfect, perfect, holy. The Greek word being used here for perfect is teleo. Can we say that? Teleo. I'm trying to say it exactly like the pronunciation when I click on it. It's like teleo. Um, so it's teleo. It means perfect. Okay, it means perfect, but it also means finished, complete. God is teleo, completely perfect. Nothing nothing to be added on to him, no modifications, no midlife crisis he needs to make it through. He doesn't need to upgrade his cell phone plan. He doesn't need to diversify his portfolio. He is teleo, nothing more to learn, nothing more to gain. Tell you. 
So here's the idea I've been wrestling with. Why do we need to be holy and perfected in order to draw near to God and worship? I understand that Hebrews and several other places in the New Testament talk about um, us being made holy and perfected through the sacrifice of blood in Jesus Christ. A lot of the worship songs we sing, I've got my hands raised. I'm like, yes, I'm in on that. I get, I, I'm receiving that, but, but why? Why would we also need to be teleo? Well, let's do this. Let's look at some biblical figures, okay? Some biblical figures who were not quite teleo just yet and who had encounters with a holy and perfect God. And let's see how it went for them. All right, the obvious place to start is Isaiah 6. Isaiah, a prophet for Israel in the Old Testament, he receives a special vision. He received a special vision, a glimpse of God seated in his very throne room. And in it, in his glimpse, in his vision, Isaiah saw a holy and perfect God. In fact, God's holiness is repeated three times by the seraphim as they were calling out to one another. Now, the seraphim, are, they're a created being living in the heavenly hosts, and these specifically were living in God's very throne room. And they actually had to shield, as they were in God's throne room in his holy presence, they had to shield their eyes because they couldn't look upon God and his holiness. So in Isaiah's vision, the seraphim are crying out to one another. They're crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. Now, just a quick aside here. We've talked about this before, but Hebrew grammar, Old Testament grammar, is very different from our grammar. When we write, we have all sorts of ways that we can emphasize something, that we can emphasize a point. We can, we can boldface something. We can underline it. We can put it in an exclamation mark behind it. In Hebrew, the strongest way to communicate something, the strongest way uh, to say something was to repeat it. To repeat it two times was kind of a big deal. Like if Ron Burgundy were living in ancient Israel, he'd have called himself Ron Burgundy, Ron Burgundy. It's kind of a big deal. Guy, guys, that's for you. This is a mid-sermon check-in to make sure you're still with me, all right? All right, he's like, did he say Jim Ron Burgundy? Yes, I did. All right, we tracking? Okay, here we go. God's holiness here is repeated three times. And guess what? It's the only one, the only one of God's attributes that are ever repeated three times. It's the only one. It isn't love, love, love. It isn't just, just, just. No, it is holy, holy, holy. Now that must tell us something about the level of God's passion for his holiness. That must tell us something about the level of God's passion for his holiness. Isaiah sees this, and do you know what happens? Isaiah becomes self-aware. Isaiah becomes self-aware. Here's what he says. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Isaiah was made aware 
of the depths of his sinfulness when in the presence of the holiness and perfection of God. And not only is he aware of his own sinfulness, he's aware of his community sin, his environment sin. Now another quick aside here about how serious this proclamation is from Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet, and prophets gave two kinds of oracles or proclamations. They gave oracles of weal, that's W-E-A-L, weal, and they gave oracles of woe. Oracles of weal are blessings. Like Jesus gave oracles of weal during the Sermon on the Mount. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed, that's an oracle of weal. Jesus also gave oracles of woe, Woe to you na- who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. And we don't, we don't really use that word, woe, uh, as much anymore, but, but we are familiar with the word curse, right? Woe doesn't seem very serious, but what about the word curse? Right, curses, blessings. A woe, it's like a curse. It is the opposite of a blessing. So are you starting to get the full picture here that's going on with Isaiah? Right? Like Isaiah, when getting a vision of God, immediately goes to cursing himself. How backwards is that? Like when we, when we think about meeting God, do we ever think that we would curse ourselves? Like I'm meeting God. I am cursed. This is not going to go well with me. I'm meeting God. This is not what I thought. I am undone. I am ruined. Like is that, is that how we picture our response when we think about meeting God? There was a survey done from USA Today about 10 years ago or so answering this question. If you could get in contact with God directly, ask a question, and get an immediate reply, what would you ask? Here are the results. Put them up here behind me. There we go. 34% would ask, what is my purpose here? Hey, God. God what am I supposed to be doing? What did you make me for? 19%. Well, I have life after death. Hey, God, how how am I doing? Did I make it? 16%. Why do bad things happen? Hey, God, uh, I'm looking around down here. It's not going so well. What are you doing up there? 12%. I have no idea what I would ask God. 7%. Is there any intelligent life elsewhere? Hey, God, hey, man, are there any aliens out there, man? I just want to know, bro. I mean, I do want to know if there are aliens out there, to be honest, but just saying. (laughs) But I don't think I'd be in that 7%. Maybe I would. Um, 6%, how long will I live? God, how long do I have? Right, look, I, I get it. It's a hypothetical. But still, all of these postures are so far from the reality of what would actually happen because what would actually happen before you even uttered the first syllable of your question is you would fall on your face in grief and misery as you become aware of your sinfulness and just how short you fall of God's holiness. That's reality. God is holy, holy, holy. You know what? You put that back up there, those responses. I'm beginning to think that 12%, those are, the, uh, those are the folks who couldn't even think of a question. I think they might be perhaps the wisest. They might be the closest to reality. Isaiah curses himself when he sees God. 
Well, what about Jesus? What about people encountering Jesus? I mean, that was different, right? Fully human, Jesus was fully human, fully God, came as an infant. Yes, he was different, but but you know what's interesting? When Jesus displayed his power, there were similar reactions at times. Does anyone remember Peter's reaction the first time he witnessed the power of Jesus Christ? Peter and his brother Andrew, they'd been fishing all night. These professional fishermen had caught nothing. They caught nothing. Jesus walked up to them and asked if he could get in their boat so he could preach the word of God to a big crowd that was following him. And once Jesus was done preaching, he told Peter to cast out his net again. Hey, Peter, cast out your net. And Peter was like, man, we didn't catch a thing all night. There's nothing there. I mean, I'll do it, but there's nothing there. And when he brought his nets up, they were so full of fish, they had to call over another boat to come and help. And when both boats were full, they almost sunk from the weight of all the fish. Like, can you imagine? And what was Peter's response? Was he like, the Lord, that was amazing. How'd you do that? Hey, can you do that again? Are there any aliens out there? <laughs> no. No. When confronted with the power of Jesus Christ, when confronted with the power of God, when Peter gets a glimpse at the teleo of Jesus, the scriptures say this. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. You see, church, our natural response when confronted with God's holiness is an immediate awareness of our sinful condition, and we shouldn't even be in the same environment as a holy God. That's how serious this is. Habakkuk, one of the Old Testament's minor prophets, said this when witnessing God's power. I heard, and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Get this, decay crept into my bones, and my legs trembled. Job said this, my, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Pastor and theologian R.C. Sproul said it this way, our natural bent, our natural bent, our natural inclination is to hide ourselves from him because we know instinctively that as soon as the holy appears, it exposes and reveals anything and anyone who is not holy by virtue of that standard. Remember Adam and Eve's first response after they, after they sinned? What was it? They hid, right? Adam was, it says, afraid. What about Moses? Do you remember Moses' initial reaction with God? Exodus 3, 6. It says at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Now Moses was... Um, as he continued meeting with God throughout the rest of his life, Moses grew a bit more confident with God until one day uh, Moses asks God, he asks God for the ultimate experience, right? He asks God to see his glory. Now, a good definition of glory is God's perceivable, seeable holiness. 
That's how I like to think of what is God's glory. It's his holiness that we can perceive, that we can see. And Moses asks if he can see, and if he can see it. This is Exodus 33, and God responds to him and says, I will cause my goodness, my goodness, to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. But you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. So God, he takes Moses, he puts him in a big cleft of a rock, like a big opening of a rock. He sticks him in there. He covers him up with with his hand. And as he passes, as his goodness passes, and and then once God is off in in the distance a bit, he removes his hand so Moses can get a glimpse of God's backside. And because of that, do you remember what happens? You remember what happens? Moses heads back down Mount Sinai. Can you imagine? You've just seen some of God's glory, right? He heads back down Mount Sinai to the Israelites. And what happens? The Israelites, they cannot stand to look at Moses. They're afraid to approach him. Moses, why? Because even a brief glimpse of the backside of God's glory, his perceivable holiness, causes Moses to be so bright and radiant that his people cannot stand to be in his presence. Has anyone ever been to like a big, big concert, big rock concert, EDM concert, whatever, right? Like, um, and the light show is just fantastic, right? There's beautiful blues and reds and purples and whatever. And then like at a climactic moment in the concert, they'll turn on these big white floodlights. It's just like, <laughs> you know, and you're kind of like, at first you're like, oh, that's cool. Whoa, no, it's not. And, and then and, and the people up on the stage look like silhouettes. And it's, that's, that's what, I, in my mind, that's what I, I visualize. Like you can't, you can't handle the intensity of it for more than a second or two. It, it would be like that times a thousand. That's what Moses was omitting. That's amazing. You know, church, um, I don't know if I'd share this or not, but I, I will. I, I have, uh, um, I think, personal experience uh, with this kind of intensity of God. So when I was searching for the truth about 20 years ago, and really it, God was pursuing me, I just didn't know it. Um, but Jesus the, the nail in the coffin for me, which I get as a bad um, idiom. <laughs> Although my old self did die, so boom, I'm still preaching. Here we go. Um, yeah, come on, yeah. Um, Jesus came to me in a dream, and, and as he approached me, his face was turned this way, and it was turning towards me, and as it turned towards me, I, could, I couldn't hold his gaze. It was too bright. I just, I, ha- I, couldn't, I couldn't look at him. It was as if lightning were an inch away from my eyes. And I woke up, heart pounding, s- heavy sweating everywhere. The bed was drenched. And, and that, I followed Jesus from that day on. Praise God. Um, yeah. My friends, it is a very serious matter to be in the presence of a holy God. It seems that the holiness of God, something that, he's, that God's clearly passionate about, it seems like it creates a big problem for the unholiness of people. Virtually all of us, every human, pictures whatever comes after this life as being some kind of paradise, some kind of perfection, right? Be, or holiness, be it, be it a mental state of bliss 
or nirvana or a little paradise or a kind of heaven. I mean, whatever it is, it's perfect, right? You don't often hear people say, you know, I think what happens when you die is you go to this place and taxes are really high and the politicians are liars and maybe you have a friend or two and you may need to drop a few pounds. Like, no, no, we long for perfection in the afterlife. It's intrinsic in us and every major world religion seeks recognizes this and seeks to provide an answer on how to obtain that perfection. And they do this with a set of rules or remedies or practices or meditations or moralistic choices or frequencies or crystals or scales upon which we can weigh our good deeds versus our bad in order that we may one day be able to stand in the presence of perfection. Every major world religion has the same philosophy advice except for the religion of Jesus Christ. Church, we've examined God's word today and God shows us what it's like when sinful people come into the presence of a holy and perfect God. Ask yourselves, could any human being ever bridge the gap between our sinfulness and God's holiness? Does that even make sense? Of course not. No, this gap, this chasm is too big. We sang about it earlier. How high the mountain I could not, uh, how great the chasm that lay between us. How high the mountain I could not climb. Phil Wickham seems to get it. No human can do this on their own. But, but, best word in the Bible. What about someone who was both fully human and fully God? Someone who, after he offered himself up as a sacrifice, rose from death and was seated at the right hand of God. Someone who didn't consider equality with God something that could be grasped by us. Someone who was sung about in Psalm 40. Someone who was with God from the beginning and through whom all things were made. And without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The darkness has not overcome it. Someone with those credentials could certainly make possible sinful people entering into a right relationship with the perfect God and solving this massive problem. Do you see, church? It's the only solution that makes any sense at all. When we begin to take hold of what it means that God is holy, 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 when you begin to take hold of that idea, you can begin to take hold of what would actually be needed in order to bridge the infinite gap between God's perfection and our sinfulness. The answer can only be Jesus. Why? Because Jesus was himself holy. Jesus was perfect. Jesus was teleo. Why was Jesus this way? Because he was God in the flesh. Only Jesus, the God-man, can make you perfect as you draw near to worship. Hebrews 10, verse 1. Only Jesus, the God-man, can cleanse you once for all, removing your sins and removing the guilt from your sins. Hebrews 10, verse 2. And only Jesus, the God-man, can make you holy. Hebrews 10, verse 10. Therefore, brothers and sisters, when we declare Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we die to ourselves and are raised in new life with Jesus Christ. We just saw a beautiful symbol of that in baptism today. Paul said our lives are hidden with Christ. That's Colossians 3.3. And when God sees us because our lives are hidden in Jesus Christ, he sees, he doesn't see us, he sees the holiness of his son Jesus in radiant splendor, and we can stand in God's presence unashamed and able to draw near in worship. It's the best news. It's the best news. It's called the good news. It's called the gospel. All right, now we spent a lot of time today talking about the holiness of God. 
and how it doesn't go well when sinful people encounter a holy God. But now, let's use that knowledge. Let's use that knowledge and take hold of something else. Please hear this. Please hear this. This same God with the same holiness, the God that caused Moses and Adam and Habakkuk and Peter and Isaiah to curse themselves and hide, that same holy God, he loves you. That's what I'm talking about. He loves us. He loves us. He loves us so much that he died for us and all we have to do is believe it, repent, and accept his gift. That's it. That bridges the chasm. That climbs the mountain. If you haven't placed your trust and faith in Jesus, do it now, right where you are. Tell God that you want him in your life, that you now understand you could never do enough good to be right with him, and that you believe that Jesus has paid for all your sins in his death and resurrection. Tell God you're sorry for your sins, and you're ready to trust him now. That's it, friends. That's all. And for those of us who are already following Jesus, sometimes we still find ourselves weighing our good deeds Versus are bad, right? Almost like a spiritual diet. Hey, I worked out hard today, so I'm eating ice cream right before bed at 11 o'clock tonight, right? Hey, God, my church attendance has been on fire lately. I only miss one Sunday from February to May. I, I think I might be taking a little hiatus this summer. Dial it back a little bit. You know, you know how hard I've been working. That lake life is a calling. We're, we're still good, though. We're still good, right? Look, I'm not saying don't enjoy the lake. I love the lake. I'm saying don't put your relationship with God on a balanced scale. You know why? Because his love for you will break the scale itself. Just like the fish in Peter's boat, God's love will break your scale and the scale sitting next to it. He has an overflow of love for you and his desire for you is for you to love him. Don't get it backwards. We do not pursue righteousness and holiness to merit God's love. We pursue righteousness and holiness because of God's love. That's our motivation, that's our heart, and one day we will stand in the presence of a holy God covered in the beautiful radiance of the holiness of Jesus Christ. Church, if you need one last encouragement, here it is. This is the writer of Hebrews. This is back in chapter four, but it hits different after you read chapter 10. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace, with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. That same writer, that same author who writes so much about God's holiness and perfection also says that because of Jesus we can approach God's throne of grace with confidence. Confidence. Picture in your mind's eye all of the encounters with the holy God that we talked about this morning. How far away does the word confidence feel in each of those situations? Light years away, right? But because of Jesus, we can approach a holy God with confidence from hiding and shame and guilt to confidence. Confidence because of what Jesus has done. My friends, that is the power of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Uh, I'd like to call the band up at this time. So band, why don't you come on up? And church, we're gonna do this. We're gonna respond with two songs, but this first song, I'd like to ask that you just stay seated. Let this song wash over you. Let this song be your prayer and a response 
to what we've just heard about God's holiness and our salvation in Jesus Christ, okay? And then for the last song, um, we'll go ahead and stand and we'll sing. And for the last song, we'll have Anne and James Hess will come forward and they will be here to pray for you. I highly encourage you, come forward for prayer. Amen? All right.